Uh, last week, I was um, speaking on sexual purity uh, from the earlier bit uh, in Ephesians. And I thought that was quite a challenge. And now we've got this passage, okay? Submission is for everyone. That's the, the title of the talk today. And I guess that's the aim too. My aim uh, today as I speak is for each one of us here, each one of us to see that submission is actually a good and wonderful thing for every single one of us. And I'm aware just saying that presents a huge challenge because submission, if you like, is a dirty word. We live in an age that is all about freedom, all about liberation, not least for women, children, and workers, the three sort of sections of the Bible reading that Sam just read for us. And so any thought of submission sounds regressive and sounds outdated. So I think we need to pray. Shall we pray? Let's pray. Uh, Lord God, we pray that you would teach us more about yourself and that you teach us to understand what your word says and that you teach us by the power of your spirit to understand how to apply it into every single one of our lives. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, when I have um, already got a Bible passage that talks about submission and slavery, it may well be foolhardy in the extreme to start by introducing another exceedingly controversial ethical subject, abortion. But much of the media this last week has been dominated, hasn't it, by the overturning of Roe versus Wade by the Supreme Court in the States so that individual states in America can now have the right to make abortion illegal, which about 15, 20 states are in the process of doing. And as a result, as I'm sure all of you are aware, discussion of women's rights has come to the fore with a huge, huge passion. Take Michelle Obama. Uh, she said this this week. She said, I'm heartbroken for people around this country who just lost the fundamental right to make informed decisions about their own bodies. Take James Corden. He said, a woman's right to choose what happens to her own body has been wiped out in a moment. Now, you can see exactly where their frustrations, their heartbreak comes from. Some pro-lifers in the US who have worked so hard for abortion to be banned seem to not be in the slightest bit interested in helping women, particularly those from lower socioeconomic backgrounds, helping women to, to keep their babies through improved maternity rights, through free healthcare, through better adoption options. You know, those who advocate for the vulnerable before birth need to also help the vulnerable after birth, or they're in danger of rightly being branded hypocrites. And yet, Michelle Obama, James Corden, so many others like them are giving their views while seemingly having an enormous blind spot to the glaring rights of a whole other marginalized set in society, the rights of those unborn in the womb. And the question comes, how do the rights of the pregnant woman over what happens in her own body, how do they interact with the rights of the unborn child themselves, a person in their own right, and surely with a right to live? Whose rights win? You know, at the extreme, in India, there is a gender gap 
of 25 million less women than men in that country. In China, it's 35 million less women due to the selective abortion of females rather than males in the womb. What do we think about those women's rights that haven't even been allowed to be born? Now, it is a massive, massive ethical question. It's not the main point of today's sermon, but I thought it helpful to touch on it and also to point you to what I have found most helpful as I've tried to think through what has gone on in the state sort of theologically. Uh, And that is what I found most helpful is a a pastoral letter written to his congregation by John Tyson, who who is the pastor of Church of the City, New York. And I commend that letter uh, to you if you want to think more about it. I also want to point you to the work of Options. Uh, Options is a Christian organization that we partner with both financially and in prayer here at HDC. Options provide free confidential support for all issues related to pregnancy, including unplanned pregnancy, bereavement after miscarriage, and difficult feelings after an abortion. But what is definitely clear, and why I bring it up this morning, is that women's rights are a big, big topic at the moment. And understandably so. Because we live in a world where so much inequality still exists between the sexes in so many arenas. You know, the pay gap in this country is 15.4%, but it's 21% in the US. Or or with funding in sport for women versus men. Again, there is huge discrepancy, and it shouldn't be so. And as much as when you sort of read through the gospel accounts, if you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, particularly Luke's gospel, you see how Jesus elevated the status of women far beyond the culture of his time and showed how male and female are equally valued by God. Just as much as when you read that that Paul shows that complete equality between man and woman too, when he says in Christ there is neither male nor female. What happens is very quickly in discussions about this kind of matter, our passage today is what is referred to as a supposed proof text that the Bible, that Christianity is regressive, is anti-women, is anti-equality, is anti-women's rights because it mentions the S word. Not sex, that was last week's sermon, but submission. Now, the truth is that there are men who have oppressed and abused women in appalling ways down the ages, and it still happens today under the guise of submission. And so above all, I guess what I want today, what I'm praying for today, is for each one of us to see this, to see that that has happened, that appalling action of when men have oppressed and abused women, That appalling action, that has happened because this Bible passage, Ephesians chapter five, it has happened because this Bible passage has been ignored. It's not because this Bible passage has been followed. That's what I want us to see. So let's see what we can learn about submission. And I want us to see, as I say, how it is actually a positive thing for every single one of us. First thing I'd love you to do is to look up a few verses from our reading to chapter 5, verse 18. We looked at this last week. Uh, Chapter 5, verse 18 says, Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. 
Instead, be filled. Literally, go on being filled with the Spirit. And we saw last week this amazing contrast as we were thinking about sexual purity. We saw if the result of being filled with alcohol is debauchery, then the question is, what is the result of being filled, not with alcohol, but what is the result of being filled with the Holy Spirit? And the result is four things, according to Paul, that he says in the next verse. He says, the result of being filled with the Spirit is firstly, encouraging each other, so speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Secondly, the result of being filled with the Spirit is worship, sing and make music from your heart to the Lord. Third, thing, third result of being filled with the Spirit is thankfulness, verse 20, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you may have thought of those three things. If I'd said to you, what's the result of being filled with the Spirit? You might have said those three things. You know, encouraging each other, worship, thankfulness. They sound the kind of thing that is the result of you being filled with the Spirit. But actually, Paul says there's one more thing. There's one more thing. In the Greek, that one sentence, it starts with the command, verse 18. Go on being filled with the Spirit. That's the command. And then there are four participles that come afterwards. Those three things, speaking to one another, singing, giving thanks, and then the fourth one, it's verse 21. Verse 21 is not a new sentence, let alone a new paragraph, as it looks like in our Bibles. The fourth consequence of being filled with the Spirit is submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submission is a result of being filled with the Holy Spirit. So whoever you are here today, whether you're male or female, whatever your relational status, if you are filled with the Spirit, you will be doing some submitting in your relationship with other people. And so if you are sitting here today as a Christian and you think you are totally opposed to the concept of submission, may I humbly suggest you need to do some thinking about what submission actually means. Because submission, the Bible says, is an inevitable result of being filled with the Holy Spirit. And all Christians have the Holy Spirit living in them. So that's the first thing. Submission is a result of being filled with the Spirit. Second thing, submission, it also flows from recognizing Jesus as Lord. So verse 21, it's not just the final outworking of being filled with the Spirit. It's also the basic principle of all that follows, all that Sam read in that reading. Just look at it again. Verse 21, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And the idea is that because vertically, vertically we submit to Jesus, we reverence Jesus as our Lord, because of that we turn to submit to one another horizontally in our relationships. And in this next bit of the letter, what we've seen is we get these three examples of what submission looks like. Three pairs we've got in marriages, wives and husbands, in parenting, children and parents, and in the workplace, slaves and masters. And what we're going to do is we're going to spend most of our time this morning looking at the husbands and wives bit. But let me just show you this second point here, that submission flows from recognizing Jesus as Lord. Let me just show you this point in the slaves and masters section, okay? So let me say this, first of all, that... The, this is not the Bible saying slavery is fine. Slavery back then in Paul's time was not like the transatlantic slave trade that Wilberforce campaigned against and got abolished. That is clearly condemned. If you want a verse for that, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 9 to 11. What Paul is talking about here, what's, what this looked like back in his time, it, it wasn't, the word differences, but it wasn't majorly different from employers and employees. That is the best way to apply these verses to our context, employers and employees. 
But what I want you to see, just look at this little section, chapter six, verses five to nine, uh, masters and slaves, just look at how it all revolves around our connection to Jesus Christ as Lord. Uh, it's all about submitting to Jesus as Lord. So up on the screen is gonna come those verses and some bits highlighted. And I just want you to see this. End of verse five, what does it say? Just as you would obey Christ. Middle of verse six, but as slaves of Christ. Middle of verse seven, as if you were serving the Lord. Start of verse eight, because you know that the Lord will reward Middle of verse nine, since you know that he who is both their master and yours. Do you see every verse, five, six, seven, eight, nine, says it is our link to Jesus, our submitting to Jesus as our Lord that changes everything about how we relate to people at work. So Paul says the general principle is that as employees, we should obey our bosses. We should, in other words, submit to them. Verse six, we should do it not only to win their favor when their eye is on you. Now, you know, I think back to my time as a management consultant, and most of the time, I've got to admit, those were the two primary reasons why I did obey my boss. You know, I obeyed her to win her favor. I obeyed her when she would see the work I was doing. You know, I'd relax a little bit if she wasn't in the office. And I would hazard a guess that I'm not the only one here like that. You know, think of how you work. You know, when you're working from home in this new flexi-working culture, I am guessing you're probably not quite so focused as when you're in the office and the boss is watching you. Certainly, the people that sunbathe out on the common there, there's plenty of them during the week, they're not so focused on their work as they're sunbathing away, are they? Uh, there's, a, there's a great little story of the preacher Charles Spurgeon, and he was uh, talking to a maid in a house who'd just become a Christian. And Spurgeon asked this maid what evidence she could give that she'd become a Christian. And this maid replied to Spurgeon, she said, well, sir, I now sweep under the doormats. It's a great answer. I now sweep under the doormats. She knew that her new responsibility as a Christian, it wasn't just to please her earthly boss, not just to do things that her earthly boss would notice. Her new responsibility was to please her heavenly boss, the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who can see all things, even dust under doormats. She submitted to her earthly boss as a way of demonstrating her submission to her heavenly boss, Jesus. And it's just the same, this concept of submission for bosses too. Look at verse nine, chapter six, verse nine. It says, and masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. So if you're a boss here, if you're a manager, we should treat those who work for us in the same way that we expect to be treated. We mustn't misuse our positions of authority with threatening behavior. Rather, we should submit to those who work for us in the sense that we should help them to flourish. We should help them to flourish. Why? Because we are reporting to our heavenly boss, Jesus. Third, Let's now see how does submission apply specifically in marriage. Now for me, um, when I was at university, uh, that was the first time I was ever part of a church. I became a Christian age 17, so, so university was the first time I was ever part of a church. And I left university 25 or so years ago now. And I can remember just one sermon vividly from my time at church at university. And that sermon that I can remember vividly was a sermon on this very passage that we are looking at this morning. 
And I remember hearing the Bible passage being read in church, just like Sam read it for us this morning. And I remember hearing it as the person read the Bible passage. I remember thinking, that is so unfair. I remember just thinking, you know, the poor woman being made to submit. And then I remember listening to the vicar's sermon. And I was totally blown away by the surprise of the passage. And what the vicar that day said was something like this. He said this. He said, we tend to think that we can't be powerful if we're not bossing people about. But with God, it is not a question of who is the boss in the marriage. He said, no, the question is, from God, the question is who, the wife or the husband, who must stoop the lowest? Wife or husband, who must stoop the lowest? And then he said this, he said, the husband must stoop the lowest. The husband. And as he said that, it revolutionized my thinking because I was expecting him to say, the wife's got to stoop the lowest. After all, verse 22, she's the one who has to submit. But he said, no, 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 it is the husband who has to stoop the lowest because of verse 25. Verse 25, what does it say? It says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. You see, Christ did not boss the church. Christ did not oppress the church or exploit the church or look to rule over the church. No, what did Jesus do? Jesus gave himself up for the church. That's what that verse says. He took his body to the cross to be nailed there because of his great love for the church, for you and me. The picture that the Bible paints is that me or any of you men here who are husbands or who one day will be husbands, we are to be prepared to be crucified for our wives. And why? We'll read on. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish but holy and blameless. See, the picture is of the wife liberated by her husband's love. The wife, free to be who God meant her to be. I am to love my wife, Susanna, by giving myself up for her so that she has the God-given confidence and freedom to bloom into the person that God has created her to be. I'm to give myself up for her so that she might be more and more radiant. Now, I'm ashamed to say I'm not always like that for Susanna. You know, often I am focused far more on my desires and my needs rather than her desires and her needs because of my sin. You know, we saw that the, the debate about abortion is a debate about rights, the woman's rights versus the baby's rights. But you know, if the discussion about marriage becomes a discussion about rights, the wife's rights versus the husband's rights, it will end in disaster. Marriage is not about me enforcing my rights. Rather, it is about me living out my responsibilities. It's about responsibilities, not rights. Nowhere am I called to enforce Susanna to submit, but everywhere I am called to lay down my life for her. And that's not just about my feelings. It's about my actions. You know, if you look at the next verse, verse 28, Paul writes this. He says, in the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. 
See there, Paul is commanding me to love Susanna. I ought to love her, he says. Emotions can't be commanded, can they? You know, Paul can't say you ought to feel this sort of gooey, squishy love for Susanna. He can't command you to have emotions for someone. He can't command that. But he can command action. Actions can be commanded. You must demonstrate love for your wife through your actions. And the media, the movies, they tell us it's all about emotions. Emotions aren't wrong, of course not. But fundamentally, romantic love is far more about a choice to act than about our feelings, which can come and go. To get married requires a choice. There'll be people here this morning debating about whether to get married to someone. But here's the key question. This is the key question of whether to get married to someone or not. Can I make the choice to love this person till death us do part? Will I choose to love them with my actions for life? And it is into this context, the context of the husband choosing to love his wife in action by being, by being willing to lay down his life for her so she'll flourish, so she'll be radiant, that the idea of submission makes sense. So what does submission look like for the wife? Well, first, submission is just to your own husband. That's what verse 22 says. It's to your own husband. It's not submission to men in general. Submission implies no inferiority. After all, the Bible talks about Jesus submitting to the Father. Submission doesn't mean agreeing on everything. It doesn't mean having traditional gender roles for the wife staying at home. After all, we read in the Gospels that Jesus was financially dependent on some of his wealthy female followers. Submission doesn't mean that women are less gifted in leadership than men. Submission is certainly not the wife putting the will of the husband before the will of Jesus. Submission does not in any way mean living in fear of your husband. Submission is simply about having two equal human beings, a husband and a wife, where the husband bears the primary responsibility to lead that partnership in a God-glorifying direction. Quite simply, we will never understand how this works unless we see Jesus as the ultimate man. Unless we see Jesus as the ultimate husband, the husband is to be like Jesus, giving up his life for his wife. It is, verse 21, it is mutual submission out of reverence for Christ. Now, in the, in the last few minutes... These three areas of the passage, marriage, parenting, workplace. I want to say, just, just sort of speaking practically, in the next year at HTC, we are planning to do more providing help in the form of courses and events. So we're going to be doing a parenting course. You know, if you're a parent, I don't know about you, but certainly for me, I read chapter 6, verse 4. It says, fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Now, my children regularly tell me that I exasperate them, so I need help with parenting. I don't know about you, if you're a parent, but I do. Uh, so we're looking at doing a parenting course. We're looking at, in the coming year, academic year, doing a dating course as well. We're looking at spending some time thinking about how we live out our faith in the workplace. We've got a pre-marriage course for those who are engaged or thinking about engage, getting engaged starting next February, March time. 
But before then, in the autumn, we've got five Tuesday evenings starting Tuesday the 8th of November, and we're going to run the marriage course, which is for married couples. So I want to encourage you, if you're a married couple here this morning, please do head onto the courses page of our website, and if you would like to book on for that. But alongside practical teaching, alongside action in these areas, we need to pray, and that's what we're going to do in a moment. But before then, I just want to finish by making the most important point this morning, okay? If you forget everything else, this is the most important point, and I think I'm going to do it best by, by giving you this picture. Uh, when I was little, um, and those of you who are similar age to me or older will relate to this, you know, when we were little, um, there weren't Xboxes, there weren't Wiis, things like that. And I often used to get given, instead, models to build. You know, this sort of Airfix model aeroplane or Airfix model boat. They were, I was disastrous at them. They were very fiddly. There were thousands of little bits of them. Uh, you know, some people were brilliant at putting them together, but I was absolutely rubbish. I was far too impatient. I was far too imprecise. I used to break things. I used to, you know, get the superglue everywhere and the superglue all over this model, and it was half the time I stuck it to my finger and then I stuck it to the model. You know, it was a disaster. Well, you know, the ultimate point that Paul is making is that marriage is a bit like those models I used to make. Some people's marriages are better than others. Just as some people's model airplanes are better than others, and you can work on them, and you can try and make them better. But you know, all of them, they will ultimately disappoint in some way or other, because they're just a model. You know, if you gave someone a real plane or a real boat rather than just a model one, well, that'd be far more exciting, wouldn't it? You see, we live in a world which can idolize sex and romance. We live in a Christian world that can idolize marriage. But what this Bible passage reminds us is that not getting married in this life, but following Christ is like not being given the model plane, but getting given a real plane, which is far, far, far more exciting. Just as we close, look at verse 31. Paul's quoting Genesis 2, and he says, For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, he says. But I'm talking about Christ and the church. See, Paul is saying that all along, his primary focus actually hasn't been so much on the relationship between husband and wife, but on the relationship between Christ and the church. His focus hasn't been on the model. His focus has been on the real thing. And when we are fully enjoying the real thing, our marriage to Jesus, no one will be too upset about whether they have or have not had this little gluey model airplane of marriage in this life. Human marriage, it will not be in the new creation. And yet, the Bible, it starts with a wedding day in Genesis 2, and it finishes with a wedding day in Revelation 19, a wedding day between us, the church, and Jesus. And Jesus Christ, he is our ultimate spouse. Jesus Christ, he is the only one that can really give us perfect love, complete affirmation, total security. And every single one of us here in this church this morning, Jesus Christ, not any spouse that we may or may not have, but for every one of us, Jesus Christ, he 
is the ultimate person to submit to.